Technical difficulties do happen. <clears throat> but that doesn't change why we're here. And it doesn't change what we're doing. We uh, aborted the last song just due to some voices having some struggles. So, <clears throat> But if you have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, we're going to look at this morning. God's overseers of the local church. That's what this is about. Um, it's kind of a hot topic right now if you followed anything in the news lately about pastors and women and who's supposed to be. But we're going to talk about that. Let me read this passage to you. Well, then we'll get into it. 1 Timothy 3, starting with verse 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle. Not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Let's pray. Father, we know that your church, the believers of your son, those who gather, congregate, and work together are, is precious to you. And Jesus, we know that it is your body and your bride. I mean, it is the hope of eternity in this present world. So we're going to see this morning, Father, and I thank you for this scripture that, that talks about how you care enough to design a structure, an organization to your bride. Help us to understand it. Help us to take to heart what's written here, the truth of it. May it speak to our lives and change it for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever wondered why we have three branches of government, you ever thought about that? I know you probably was taught in, in school it's meant to be like a checks and balances. You know, another word for that is accountability. That's the reason we have three branches of government. And you know, church leadership, leading the body of Christ, it needs the same thing. It needs accountability. It needs accountability because many pastor failures, and I, unfortunately I've had to deal with some of them, I've had to study some of them, i had to read about some of them. Many pastor failures could have been prevented if that pastor had had a group of men around him who could have held him accountable, helped him, and he helped them. It's a mutual thing. And God calls for that. Multiple elders to help one another. It's a hot topic these days because if you pay any attention to the Southern Baptist Convention, and even if you, even if you read secular news outlets, you will have probably seen this week that the Southern Baptists voted that women can't minister in the church again. That's what, that's what some people portrayed it as, that women can't have no place in our church to serve. That is not what happened <laughs> at all. There was a discussion because of three churches who had decided, two churches that had decided to ordain 
women as senior pastors, pastors in that leadership role that we're going to talk about this morning. It took the Southern Baptist Convention took action to affirm what we believe Scripture teaches, what our faith and message says. That's what happened. And so when you read something in the secular media, please go to Baptist Press and, and see what they say about it, because that's not most of what they portrayed did not happen. Last week, I talked about women and, and their positions and their opportunities in the church. This week, I'm talking about men and their responsibilities. So um, it's going to stretch us a little bit in our obedience. That's, that's one of the things. To give you some context here to this book, first of all, 1 Timothy, Paul wrote that for a purpose to Timothy, who was pastor of the church at Ephesus, a town in what we know today as ancient Greece or ancient uh, uh, Turkey. He wrote this there, and in verse 15 of chapter 3, he tells him why he wrote it. So this kind of guides everything you read in this, in this book. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, But if I should be delayed, I have written, I have written, so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's kind of the backbone of the whole point of this book is he's wanting to help the church get organized, stay organized, stay focused, stay on track, because the world is always trying to tear us down. And then we give them plenty of reasons to sometimes. But the church is our future hope. The future hope of this world, this is the only pl place, this is the instrument God has decided to use to project the gospel into the world, the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. It's, God's, it's Christ's body. And it's the means for him to do that. So we must see our purpose in this. We must realize that when we read these passages like this, even though it may be harder to swallow and handle, it is for the purpose of the kingdom of God. So here's kind of the textual idea of what Paul's getting at this morning. The church's conduct, for their conduct, God instructs Timothy to recognize and install men as overseers of his church. That's what he means to do overseers and God calls overseers and we're going to explain that word to you in a, a little more in a minute God calls overseers to lead and feed his local church that's the point that's the job that's the purpose so what is an overseer and what qualities does he need to have well that's the whole point of these seven verses it tells us these very things God gives us the office of, a, of overseer and he gives us the expectations of behavior and attitude and action for these overseers. First of all, we're going to look at the office. I want to explore this because the word overseer is the, the, the Greek translation of the Greek word there. Es, um, boy, it's terrible when you get old and go blank. Episkopos, that's the Greek word there. And the, and the, and the accurate translation is overseer. Now, you, some of you may have a version of Scripture that says bishop. But since that version of Scripture, it's kind of been not the best translation. Bishop has created a whole other hierarchy that really wasn't intended by uh, that verse. So overseer is the actual word. So what are overseers in the church? They're men watching, monitoring, guiding, and correcting believers for the purpose of the kingdom of God. Jesus describes their duties when he talks about shepherds who serve by leading believers. That's, that's the whole point of an overseer. Leading them to righteousness, to holiness, to evangelism, to mission. 
That's Jesus's point, and he puts them in the church for that reason. Now, we call them different names. We call them pastors. We call them elders sometimes. That's some of the words you'll hear used. Some places call them lay pastors, men who are not paid to be a pastor, but they're a lay pastor in the church, serving the church in a leadership role. So the word overseer, the word elder, the word shepherd, and the word pastor, they're all synonymous. The Bible uses them interchangeably. In, in our English translations, those are the words you might see. But in the same passage about elders or overseers, you'll see the other word sometimes used. You'll see the word um, pastor used sometime, one time, shepherd sometimes. But there are three Greek words that kind of all involve here, and they use them interchangeably in the letters. So that's how come there seems to be sometimes some confusion about what's the name of this? What is it, elder? You know, elders, elders have, were, went all the way back to Moses' time, okay? And that's, a, that's the history of elders. But, but it is an office established by God in the church of Jesus Christ in order to aid the spiritual well-being of the bride of Christ. That's the whole point. Their task is spiritual servant leadership. Okay? That's the task of an overseer or an elder or a pastor. That's my task. Spiritual oversight. Spiritual leading. Spiritual aid for your well-being. Now, how many different references do we have in Scripture to this particular office? Well, the word elder is used 26 times for this particular office. The word overseer is used six times, most of it right here in this passage. The word shepherd is used four times to talk about a person doing this role. And the word pastor is only used once in 1 Peter 4. So it, it's interesting how we've kind of adopted pastor as the name. I like being called pastor. I mean, that's what I want to do. But... It's funny that that's the only time that that's ever translated as pastor. But all these refer to the office of elder or overseer. And also in Scripture, it implies, clearly implies, and clearly dictates that it needs to be more than one in a church. Not just one guy in charge of everything. It needs to be one, more than one, and we'll talk about that a little more in a minute, a plurality of them. That's the words that, that we use. God establishes his position for the health and function of the church. Now, he says here in verse 1, why it's a noble work. Why is it a noble work? Why is it a noble task? Why is it a good task? Whatever words you want to put in there, depending on your translation. Well, I want you to understand, first of all, this good is not the world's definition of good, okay? It's not what the world would consider good. Um, this good is better than that. It's better than what the world would define it as. It's not the way they measure Noble, good, excellent in the ways of God. That's what it's talking about. Focused on eternal measurements. Treasures in heaven. Storing up treasures in heaven mindset. It is God's call to be this way, okay? And when God calls you to this particular role as a man, it's a good call. It's a good thing. Because he wants you to do it. Now this work or this task or this duty... Is the, essence, is the essence of, of the whole office. Not just a deed or actions for a single time or purpose. It is a, a spiritual lifestyle. It is a spiritual way of living and, and leading and working in a church. It is an office that is admirable and it is rewarding in the way God admires and the way God rewards, okay? Not man's ideas. There's no riches or glory in this, okay? Anybody seeking riches or glory by being an elder or a pastor or overseer, 
they're on the wrong track. They got the wrong focus. So, and seeking it without God's call in your heart typically turns out to be a self-serving mindset, a self-serving idea. But when God calls you, it is a grand position to pursue. That's Paul's point. Paul didn't want Timothy and the men in, in Ephesus that are in his church to dread the idea of being called as an overseer because they see how hard it is for Timothy. I'm sure some of them are like, I don't want that job. I don't want to be any connected to that at all because Timothy was having some struggles as we, we find out in this book and later, in the later chapters we'll find out. He was struggling in some areas that people were challenging him in. Some of it because he was a young pastor. Some of it was because they just were. So Paul didn't want them to dread it. So that's why he puts that last little phrase there, it's a noble task to aspire to when God calls you to it. So when God calls you, he wants you to embrace it and wants you to lead God's church. And that's what I want if anyone's called to this. I want them to be ready and willing to embrace the task. God created this office. This is the bottom line here. God created this office for men to serve him in the local church. There's nothing in, in Scripture that indicates that there's this multi-level hierarchy of elderships and bishops and all kinds of sessions and stuff. Really nothing indicates that. Some people try to use the fact that the Jerusalem church was helping in the first century dictate some things, but that was the initial launch. It was more descriptive than prescriptive about what we should do. So God created this office because he knows every local church is going to be by themselves at points in time. They're not going to always have another church nearby. They're not going to always have the favor of the people. And that's why God's calling for people to do this. There are several passages of Scripture that refer to this office and the men, and yes, there's more than one referred to here, serving as spiritual leaders. Acts 20, 17. Paul calls the elders, I keep, I'm going to emphasize the plural, Paul calls the elders down from Ephesus, the same place Timothy is, in Acts chapter 20, to give them a, a little pep talk. And so it says he summoned the elders from Ephesus. And in verse 28 of Acts 20, he says, Be on guard for yourselves, plural, that's the elders he's talking to, and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In Philippians 1, Paul writes, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, and the deacons. So both offices are represented in that, in that church. And Paul addresses that letter to them. There's more than one. And in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 2, Peter says, I exhort, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the suffering of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly. See, there's the good task again, God, as God would have you. So that's, the, that's kind of the office of the overseer. Um, when an organization has only one boss, you know, one leader, and I saw this in the military a lot, a, an office that was one person deep, and when that person got moved to a different base and relocated, there was a vacancy. When, when a, an organization has just one person in charge, one leader, when they're, when they're gone, when they leave, what happens? 
usually chaos for a little while, confusion. People are like, well, who's, got, who's in charge of this and who's in, that, in charge of that? The same has happened for our churches. When there's one guy in charge of the church, or at least looking like he's in charge of the church, and he's gone, there's a vacuum of leadership there that sometimes gets filled by different people. Some aren't qualified, some are qualified. It's just been a hodgepodge in years past. The church is not set up that way. God establishes this office to be a group of elders that are ready when one leaves, even if it's the teaching pastor, even if it's the teaching elder, they're ready to pick up the, the pieces and help govern the church and move forward. That's the whole point of this office. In Baptist life, pastors are considered elders. So if you were wondering who is the overseer of this church, well, the pastor, me, Jeremy, we're the overseers at, at this point in time. And that's the way the Baptists have kind of constructed their, their churches, is that the pastors, the hired pastors usually, are the ones who are in charge. They're the leaders. They're the overseers. Now, and like I said, most of them are hired, paid. There are some Baptist churches, some Southern Baptist churches out there that have gone to a plurality of elders out there because they see this in Scripture as a necessary thing to, for the health of the church. Because in reality, Scripture speaks to a lay pastor, an overseer, someone who's not necessarily been vocationally imparted with this, but someone who God has called to spiritual leadership. And that's the structure God's trying to create here. That's the, that's the point of this. Men who meet these following qualities that we'll talk about in a minute, called by God, should serve as spiritual pastors of the congregation. Now, how many should a church have? Great question. The, the, the short, shortest answer is more than one. The best answer is probably from somewhere from three to 12, depending on the size of the church. But there's no hard and fast rule here. You just need a couple of guys who are willing to step in and lead and, and help lead spiritually a church. That's the whole point of this office. Obviously, making sure that they're qualified. Now, why have we not used this office like the Scripture teaches? Why has it not been something that a lot of churches we know of and most of us have been a part of have never had elders in a, in a sense. Well, like I said, first of all, a lot of churches, they will hire another pastor or two and, and they consider them elders, and they are, but uh, it has come to, to be kind of an accepted thing that it's always going to be someone who went to seminary. The other reason is it may stem from the fact that these qualifications are so strict, some people think you can't fulfill these descriptions, these qualifications, without going to seminary. But let me tell you something right now. Seminary internships, they don't make an elder. They don't. It starts in here. It comes from here. It dwells in here. It is not how much knowledge I got up here. It's not how much reading I've done. It's about what God's put in your heart and changed your heart to, to believe in. So it doesn't have anything to do with being well-educated. It helps sometimes, especially when you're dealing with stuff, but God says we must do it. And so when he calls us, we should. Like I said, many denominations have elders and deacons working together. Um, the teaching pastor, would be, which would be the guy usually up here on Sunday mornings, he's the guy kind of in charge. But most of them see themselves as co-elders. It's a, it's, a, it's a work together. And it's meant to be that way. And the bottom line, like I said, is that Scripture expects it. God plans for it and includes it. 
And obedience encourages us to follow it. And here's why. Again, I want to make it clear. Christ, the chief shepherd, means to care for his flock through a number of godly men who together teach, guard, guide, protect, and love the sheep. Those are some heavy responsibilities for a guy. So every local church following the leadership of their pastor should look out for men who are already doing this work. See, that's, that's one of the beautiful things is that sometimes they're already doing this. The work of an elder. And then seek to appoint them to the office. And yes, I believe we have some here that are fulfilling some of these qualifications. And God, God's convicted me in the last year or so as I've prayed through some of our needs as a church, that we need to think about doing this. We need to think about moving in this direction, to follow this direction of God's word. So I, I'm asking you just this morning to start praying with me over this, how it will look. What will, it will be. It'll, it'll be a big change in how we've done things in the past, how you've done things in the past, but it's in a righteous direction. And it's to pursue God. God and, and God directs it, and he'll do it in his timing, now, there's a booklet on a back table, three copies. That if you want, want, someone wants one, there's not any left. Kind of explaining this. Me and the deacons have gone through that book already at one time. And so it helps understand how they, they work together, the deacons and the elders, and how this happens. But, but God wants his churches to have these men in place to spiritually lead in all circumstances. And I believe we should follow that. So I ask you to join me in praying for that over the next year or so as we talk about it'll take revisions of our bylaws and a lot of other stuff that some moving parts we're not going to get in a hurry but we're going to pray about it so god establishes that office that's what he does there in verse one we we see that clearly established scripture bears it out it's all through our new testament <clears throat> and so and then he expects it to be filled with men who are spiritually mature and devoted to this, okay? So now we're going to look at the character of the overseers, what they, what they should be exemplifying. Let me read verses 2 through 7 again so these uh, characteristics are fresh on your mind because they're hard. An overseer, a pastor, an elder, therefore must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he might become conceited and incur the same condemnation as the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. Mm. Mm -mm. Well, first of all, <laughs> nobody, and I do mean nobody but Jesus, fills those qualifications completely, perfectly. Nobody can the standard, the standard we may set on that because we, we read those words, there's nobody that can fulfill it if we, if we really are honest with us. But men who pursue these traits, who pursue these attitudes, 
That's something we can think about. And the second thing is that these qualities help select the right men. Those whom God calls, he will equip with these, these characteristics. I know you've heard these probably many times in many different settings. You've probably heard these talked about. But Paul has given Timothy kind of a template, a guide. And these qualities should be cultivated in all of us, okay? There's nothing in here that's, that's different from what every Christian should be pursuing in their own heart. So Paul strings them together to show Timothy how to, to look for a man that's doing these things. And these things can't be faked. They can't be pretended. They're really, if you watch someone long enough, they'll trip up on one of these. And they'll, they'll, make, some, they'll make some real revelation to you. But, so I want you to see these kind of as a checklist to kind of go through. Um, something that a, a person would use to make sure they're, they're looking at everything right. And so is that man that we're considering to be an elder, a pastor, an overseer, is he, first of all, above reproach? We don't use that word very much, those term, that term very much. But it basically, above reproach is the umbrella for the rest of the qualifications. In other words, it means you're not able to be accused of any of these, of, of breaking any of the, these or doing any of these. You know, it's kind of like not accusable of any of the following. If you are accused... Maybe you just need some explanation. There may be some misunderstanding, or you may need to repent. And that's another clarification on whether the guy is ready for this. Has he got a tender conscience? Must be the husband of one wife. Boy, this one's been so misinterpreted, and so many people have been hurt by this one. It is not talking about divorce. Not. If someone has been divorced, it may be a, a reason to pause and, and, and investigate but it is not talking about divorce. It's talking about a man who has no eyes on any other woman but his wife. He is, the, he is a one-woman man. He has one wife. Polygamy is kind of rolled in here because of the day and age that was, was going on in the first century. As a matter of fact, in the, in the history of the first three centuries A.D., there was an edict that came out from the Roman emperor that you can't marry another woman, eventually somewhere around in the 200s. And because there were so much problems with multiple wives and, and, and men, but they allowed the Jews to keep, <laughs> to keep marrying more than one woman until sometime in the middle of 300, 360-something, after the Roman emperor became a Christian, after the Roman empire became Christianized, they decided, no, you Jews can't do that either. <laughs> so... It is talking a little bit about polygamy, which we don't really have to worry about in these days. It's really talking about where are your eyes, men? What are you looking at? Who are you chasing after? Who are you dating in your mind? Who are you being loyal to? Devoted to his only wife. Love his wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And there's the, there's the model. There's the example. That's what this, that word, that phrase is talking about. Husband of one wife. He must be self-controlled. Boy. He must not be mastered by anything. He restrains himself from excessiveness. Like anything overboard. Going after too much. He manages himself well. That's, that's self-controlled. And that's a big issue. That's something that we have to really focus on. Sensible. Yeah, we want someone with some sense, that's for sure. Sensible. Also translated at times, sober-minded. Not from intoxicating beverages, but from worldly ideas. 
sober-minded in what's going on around the world and seeing it with Christian lens on, not with, I want to chase that. Not chasing fads and, and the latest crazes. Seeking to have an even keel mindset about life. Sensible. Be respectable. Orderly, virtuous, well-behaved. Fellow believers, trust him. It's kind of like being a gentleman. You don't demand respect, you earn it. So you'll know if someone's earned respect or not. Hospitable. No men, you don't necessarily have to plan fellowships and potlucks. That's not what this is necessarily talking about, but it's open and loving to those he meets. Hospitable. Not just, not just creating a fellowship meal, but gracious. A graciousness to those you meet, no matter what situation or circumstance. You're open to them. You, you give an ear to them. You're willing to listen to them. Able to teach. The only, only qualification between deacons and, and elders different is this one right here. The elders are required to be able to teach. Now, in the first century, when they didn't have the Bible compiled like this and everybody have 15 copies on their shelf at home, when it, they had no New Testament, it was very important for them to be able to teach God's Word accurately, to defend it well, because it was, it was being attacked. And when Paul writes to Titus in chapter 1, he tells him that. He's got to be able to repel those who are attacking God's Word. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get there. Able to teach. But, but now, it, at least you need to be able to know your way around the Bible and, and express the biblical concepts of salvation, justification, faith in Christ, baptism, why we tell the good news. Those kind of things you can teach someone. You don't have to necessarily be employed as a Sunday school teacher. Um, but you need to be able to teach what the Bible says. Not be an excessive drinker. Not addicted to wine is really the literal translation of that in the Greek. Not addicted to wine. The truth is you don't need to be an abuser of alcohol or any mind-altering, behavioral-altering substance. Okay? It doesn't say anything here about not actually drinking alcohol. It says don't be addicted to it. But it also means don't let it uh, uh, chase you down and abuse you. Don't let it get, get a hold of you. That goes back to the whole uh, self-control. You're not mastered by anything. Not a bully. Now, we all know what a bully looks like, right? We all know what a school playground bully looks like and acts like. But inside the church, it's interesting how bullies look a little different. They throw their weight around. They feel like they're entitled to certain privileges and exceptions. They think there's, there's another set of rules for them, and they push their own agenda. That's bullying. That's bullying. He doesn't need to be that way. He needs to be gentle. The opposite of bullying, be gracious, have gracious kindness. That's a good way to describe it, gracious kindness. Even when you're wronged or inconvenienced, as a pastor, elder, overseer, you need to have the gracious kindness that just looks past offenses, minor offenses, Overlooks them. Doesn't put his personal feelings out there in front of everybody and, and is always worried about what he's getting. Be gentle. Don't be quarrelsome. Peaceable. Not contentious, not pretentious. He's always seeking to find resolution in a conflict, not create a conflict. He wants to find an answer. And last, not greedy. Not in love with money, not in love with wealth, not in love with gaining always, but content with what God's given them. 
It doesn't say you can't better yourself and, 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 and make more money. It just says don't love it. Don't make it the full devotion of your life. So that, that first list kind of speaks to the character and actions of, a, of an overseer, of a deacon, of an, el- I mean, of an elder, of an overseer, of a pastor. But now Paul is listing out conditions and cautions, the next part. First of all, he says, manage his own household competently. Well, that, there leaves a lot of room in there what exactly that looks like. And so we'd have to talk about it for a long time with people that we might suspect are not or are managing their household competently. competently. But they're a loving steward of their family and their resources that, that, and their provisions. They're just a good steward of it. They're not over the top. They, they'll, they'll delegate things to their wives. They'll let their kids do certain things in their household. Delegation doesn't mean you're done with it. You, you do follow up with it. Uh, sometimes that was a hard thing to convince people that I delegated stuff to in the military. I ask about it like, you're micromanaging me. No, I'm just following up. Have his children under control with all dignity. A good father will not exasperate his children. He won't make them mad just to make them mad. And that doesn't include dad jokes, okay? Dad jokes are allowed. Ephesians 6, 4 says, bring your children up in the training and instruction of the Lord. That's what a good father does. So it is kind of a Father's Day message, isn't it? You know, we don't exasperate our children. Ephesians 6, 4 tells you how to raise your children. But here's why that's important. If you can't manage your own household, why would we put the church of Jesus Christ in in your hands to be in charge of? That's a sobering thought. For me, especially. That's a sobering thought. Why would we do this? Why would we hire this guy? Why would we put that guy if he can't manage his own home? That's why we ask questions. We talk. We educate. We disciple. We pray. There's a lot of reasons why we, this is done very, very carefully. Here's some cautions. He must not be a new convert. Someone who just came to Christ, just accepted the Lord, just been baptized. He's just getting his feet on the ground spiritually in a church. He probably isn't a candidate yet. He may be someday, but being spiritually newborn, he's going to be a little bit immature. Maybe, from a, maybe not necessarily from a knowledge standpoint. He doesn't know the the 12 tribes of Israel by heart, or he doesn't know where, you know, Zacchaeus' story found in the New Testament. It's not just a knowledge thing. It's just a heart thing because he says right here why he needs to not be a new convert. He might become conceited. Boy, it's easy. It's easy. When you get a group of people that think you're important or good enough to be, I mean, when I was chosen to be a deacon in 1990-something, it was like, whoa. And and I got a little big head from it because this church thought I was a deacon material. So it's easy to happen. The same condemnation is the devil. The devil was guilty of pride. That was his number one sin. The devil was so prideful in himself, he thought he could be God. And God showed him differently. And that's what would happen, could happen, to someone who is a new convert, spiritually a little weak in the knees right now. But with proper discipleship and encouragement, they might be qualified one day. And then the last thing he says is they must have a good reputation with outsiders. Who are the outsiders? Unbelievers. Those people that aren't here this morning. No, those people that are out there not believing in Christ, not claiming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. 
And what does that mean to have a good reputation with them? It means don't alienate them over secular matters like politics. I try not to ever talk about politics, especially with non-believers. Avoid those contentious uh, subjects when you're with unbelievers. We We don't need to jeopardize our relationship with them because we need to connect with them, to tell them the greatest news ever, the news that beats all the bad news that's out there, that there is a Savior and his name is Jesus Christ and he came to save the world from sin. But he doesn't want, to fall, want them to fall into disgrace in the devil's trap. You know, snares are, are designed, snares and traps are designed to catch an animal unaware. They just don't know that it's coming. And fools, the proverb says, fall into traps. We don't need to be a fool. And we don't need any people go, going that way. Many of pastors have gotten too involved in political things or just even some, uh, some issues going on in their, in their local community that they have ruin their witness to those people, the lost people. Sometimes even when we're standing up for righteous things, we may be standing up with the wrong attitude or motive just to prove somebody wrong or whatever. We can't be like that. Overseers cannot. And with men that meet these requirements and and don't do these things that it says don't do, I mean, with men like this in your church, a church can function securely for a long time. And so that's the, that's the vision we have to take with this, is that we're looking long-term, beyond me, beyond a lot of you. What's next for this church? We're looking for men. We're looking for a concept that, that keeps God's church serving in his kingdom securely. There's no vacuum of leadership when a pastor steps down, a lead pastor steps down. Now, these, these traits don't come naturally, okay? We aren't born with these. None of us are. Because they're supernatural. Because only by the grace of Jesus Christ changing your heart, God's the only way you're going to get empowered to be able to live this way. These are, these are difficult. Nobody's perfect at them, including me. But God empowers us to, to pursue this, to live like this. Paul exhorts Timothy and men in, in 1 Timothy 4. We're going to get to this later. But I wanted to read this to you. Practice these things, Paul tells Timothy. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. See, the, the, the health and wealth, and I mean the health and care of a, of a church, it depends on this. Practice these things. Be committed to them so that your progress may be evident to all. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that's the whole point of having a plurality of elders in a church is to help the church not get drugged down into something else, but to continue carrying the gospel to the world. For the sake of the church, men must be pursuing these things in knowledge and love and always with grace because there's no way any of us will ever do any of these things without grace, the grace of God in our life. I mean, you may feel like these are too difficult if you're sitting there going, well, that's not going to be me. I sat there and said that too. It's not going to be me. And it still isn't me, but they are impossible. And, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, great preacher from the 1800s, 
He said, if you can get away with doing anything else in life, rather than being a pastor, do it. He said, don't take this on thinking, you know, you're going to make a living at this if you're not called to do it. God calls us to do these things. And so we must obey. There's not many people in our society that can be called above reproach. The, the opening qualification, be above reproach. There's not many people that can meet that requirement. And yet we elect a lot of people to offices that aren't above reproach. Okay? For centuries even. Kings, presidents, congressmen, senators, mayors, etc., etc., etc. Whatever leadership position you can think of. We know there are men out there who broke their marriage vows and been put in those offices. Some of them are still in their offices. There's not many people above reproach. Military leaders who have broken trust and betrayed this country, many of them, they chased money, they chased fame, they chased wealth, but they're still in charge at times. Bullies, quarrelsome, pretentious, and harsh men and women have been chosen to lead in some area. Many political offices, government offices, those people are there, okay? Leaders who put family last, ambition first, and are not mature for the job they were appointed, they are in charge. It's a scary thing sometimes. And we're talking outside, I'm talking secular offices primarily. But it's no wonder with this, People with terrible reputations and conduct that are put in these positions. It's no wonder that nobody trusts leaders. Our Italian daughter, she, she made a point to us one time during one of the presidential elections after she was over here. She's like, well, in Italy, it's just so, there's just so much distrust for the government because they've had so many bad leaders in a row. Starting back at Mussolini and probably even before. Mussolini and all those... They said the Italian people don't trust any of their leaders. And sometimes we don't. So no wonder they don't trust pastors sometimes, elders, deacons, popes. They don't trust any of them. Because they've seen such bad examples. They've seen leaders who are not above reproach. And kind of on on a personal example, when you hired me five years ago, Not many of you knew if I met these requirements. Some of you ask about a few of them, but not a lot of people ask me these questions. You chose to trust someone who you trusted. You trusted someone you trusted, someone you listened to them, who knew me, but some of those people didn't ask me these questions. All of these details. They were trusting my ordination by a church in the Southern Baptist Convention. They were trusting a lot of things. No one really ever fully went down this list and said, well, are you and, and what, you know. And honestly, I don't meet many of these very consistently. I mean, I'm as inconsistent as you are about obeying these things. I miss the mark. I'm not perfect. And if you've known me for any, any time, you know, well, he's not perfect. I mean, if you've known me. And I don't try to claim to be, but I have promised and I do promise by the power of God in me through the Holy Spirit to strive daily to live these out. But I, I, I got blind spots. I, I, I don't see things sometimes I might be doing that violates one of these that 
is kind of questionable, I invite questions. I invite you to critique me, to come, come to me with concerns. Because the last thing I want to do is be a, a leader in this position not doing those things. And that's the type of men we look for, those who are striving to pursue these, to serve in the roles of overseer. We're looking for people that by grace they're pursuing holiness. They're convicted of their sins when they happen. They don't try to hide it. Proverbs says that he who, he who hides his sin is not prudent and not wise, but he who confesses and renounces them will find mercy. So that's the kind of men we want. And those kind of men will exhibit these traits at some level of consistency, but never be perfect. And we do, I believe, have someone, some here today that do that. As I've watched you guys over the last five years. Jeremy is one already that's doing this on a somewhat consistent basis, which is why we ordained him. But again, I encourage you to pray over this as we talk about our church going in that direction. When and how, those are the big kind of questions. Can we move to this plurality of elders here? We're not going to get hasty about it because God established the office of the overseer to provide accountable leadership for his church. That's why he put it out there. That's why it's in scripture. We must look at it. We must follow it. We must trust and obey as we sang a few minutes ago. And as we progress through this, this book, 1 Timothy and then Titus and then 2 Timothy, we're going to see more and more about how all of this works together to help make a church healthy, to make it on track and stay on track, to give us some level of protection for the future. But we can only do this by God's grace and provision. We may have to give up some of our old ideas. This is why it's been five years before I brought this up. This is something that we don't want to get in a hurry about. It will not happen quickly. It will not happen overnight. It will happen with much prayer because it's a process. It's a process. We may need to open our hearts to kind of a new precept of Scripture that we've never thought about before. We may have to surrender some traditions. But God set pastors and deacons as offices to lead his church, to spread the gospel. And he let, did that not in a solo way. So we must pray in light of what God has kind of set up in Scripture. There's a lot of details, and you're, willing, you're free to ask me about them at some point if you want to talk about it more. But as we come to our pastoral prayer time, I would just ask us to pray for God's guidance in this, for what it's going to look like in the future, when and how we move will be up to him. So let's pray.